Welcome once again to the Richard Roper Podcast. I am Richard Roper coming to you from Chicago, Illinois. Thanks to everybody across the United States and around the world who's been listening to the podcast these last many months. We really appreciate you listening and downloading and subscribing and sharing and talking and all that good stuff. Of course, you could tell folks that the Richard Roper Show is available where all fine podcasts and even some not so great podcasts, all the podcasts can be found. So any platform, you should be able to find it. Just look for the Richard Roper Show. Now, this edition of the show, I want to talk about some controversies and uh, news developments in the world of movies and movie awards. And uh, we're also going to get into some reviews. We haven't done any reviews for a while, so I'm going to tell you about some really, really good stuff that's coming your way or is currently in theaters or streaming and some stuff that you should avoid. But before we get into all of that, here's your reminder. The Richard Roper Show is brought to you by AmericanEagle.com Studios. The digital landscape is changing rapidly. And to compete in today's online business environment, you need an experienced partner. Since 1995, AmericanEagle.com has partnered with companies of all sizes, offering web design, web development, e-commerce, mobile apps, and digital marketing to drive your overall business's success because they believe that today's online world is your online opportunity. Thanks so much to AmericanEagle.com. Uh, I want to start off by uh, talking about the 2023 Academy Awards. Uh, now, you might recall last year, the Academy They've been trying to evolve in recent years, and, and one of the things they've been trying to do is, is to tighten the broadcast and, and make it more exciting. And why did they make it more exciting last year? Because uh, we had the slap heard and felt around the world. I think that was not exactly what they had in mind. But one of the things they did last year for the first time in years was cut the amount of Oscar categories that were on the main telecast. So last year, eight different Oscar categories, original score makeup and hairstyling, documentary short, film editing, production design, animated short, live action short, and sound. All of those were cut from the main telecast, and that uh, sparked all kinds of outrage across the industry. And listen, those are all instances, incredibly invaluable categories, or, you know, in the case of live action short, documentary short, actual full works. Um, and nobody was saying that the score and the makeup and the hairstyling and production design, and my gosh, the editing, nobody was saying that that stuff wasn't important. It was just an attempt to tighten the broadcast, which really didn't work anyway. The way things are baked in with the Academy Awards, when you're going to perform all the nominated songs, when you're going to have an opening monologue, when you're going to have acceptance speeches that invariably run too long, and when you're going to have lots of commercial breaks, it's never going to be two hours. I've, I've been writing for years about ways to make it a two-hour show. I think one of the big problems from the start, and I mean going way back to the 50s, is that the Academy Awards, the people who put on the show, the people who present the Oscars, always think of it first and foremost as an, an industry event uh, celebrating the movies, which of course it is, but they never think about it in terms of it being a television product as opposed to, for example, the Grammys, which used to be uh, almost as dull as the Oscars. I don't think the Oscars are dull. I'm excited about it myself, but you know what I mean? Almost as, as traditional, if you will, as the Oscars. And now, now the Grammys are, are a big celebration and it's all about the performances. And yeah, it's cool when they get to the, to the presentation of the awards, but it's really about the memorable performances and even stuff, stuff like, you know, the MTV awards, and the Nickelodeon Kids Choice Awards, they know how to make them very entertaining. And the Academy's always been very kind of staid and stolid and uh, not thought of it as a TV show. So 
here's what you know we heard from Bill Kramer. He's the CEO of the Academy of Motion Picture Arts and Sciences. We're committed to having a show that celebrates the artisans, the arts and sciences, and the collaborative nature of movie making. This is very much what the mission of the Academy is, and I'm very hopeful that we can do a show that celebrates all components of movie making in an entertaining and engaging way. Good luck with that, Mr. Kramer. So, uh, listen, again, I think that these are great categories. I also think that you should have separate ceremonies for a lot of the technical and behind-the-scenes stuff, and then a big celebration of the glamour categories on a network television special. That's just the nature of what people are interested in, but they're not going to do that ever. So they're back to all 23 categories in a few months. We'll be talking about the nominations and we'll probably have a fun contest. I hope we'll put something together. We've done that. And uh, a couple of years ago, we did that. Hopefully we'll do that again, where you can beat the pants off me. I'll make my predictions and you can make yours and we'll have a lot of fun with that. Now, my friend Jimmy Kimmel is going to return for the third time to host the Oscars. And Jimmy does a great job. He's uh, he's danced around some controversies uh, hosting some of these award shows. But he's got, I think, uh, you know, Jimmy's a, an established, he's a more traditional late night television uh, host uh, than uh, Jimmy Fallon and some of the other guys who have, you know, a variety show. The night show's a variety show now. That's fine. It works fine for, for Jimmy Fallon. It doesn't really have any connection i don't feel to the johnny carson jay leno and even going back to jack parr years it's just a different animal jimmy is irreverent and everything but he still does pretty much a traditional talk show he does a monologue there's some you know comedy routines and it's all about the guests and they're out of there it's something that could have played the same format in the 60s and 70s as it does now uh and while he can be cheeky he's still respectful of the business uh he's friends with a lot of people in the industry so much like johnny carson i think he's he could be a perennial host uh you know have jimmy hosted i also like the idea of mixing it up once in a while uh which they've done i'm we've talked in the past about how tina fey and amy poehler are terrific uh Maya Rudolph uh, you know there are tons of talents out there Amy Schumer would be a great host uh, for the Academy Awards but Jimmy's coming back that's the deal with the Oscars all 23 categories there you go now uh, we're going to segue now um let's take a listen first of all to Emma Corrin as Princess Diana in The Crown I suppose the greatest highlight has been well well meeting all of you the people of Australia. You've made us feel so welcome, so at home. Well, perhaps because you've been so refreshing. You're not what we expect from royalty. Well, that's because I don't think of myself as royalty. You know, first and foremost, I'm a wife and a mother. That's what's most important to me. That's Emma Corrin as Princess Diana. Elizabeth Debicki has taken over the role for the most recent season. Emma Corrin won uh, Golden Globe for Best Performance by an Actress as Princess Diana, which brings us to this next story. Emma Corrin uses the pronouns uh, they and them and has said um, that they hope that there's a future in which acting awards at major film and television shows are merged into one gender-neutral category. Um I want to be very clear about this. I completely respect and believe in everyone's uh, decision about whether or not they want to be identified by various pronouns, whatever they choose, uh, whatever uh, the sexuality they were born with. I am all for that. So Emma Corrin has come out as queer, but they are using the pronouns of they and them. And I, I say good for Emma Corrin. They're a terrific, terrific actor, and we've seen other actors uh, talk about how 
why does it have to be best actress and why and best actor, best supporting actress, best supporting actor? I will say this though, there's something to consider here. If uh, and some award shows have talked about doing that and are doing that, uh, but let's say for example, in with the Oscars, we have one category. I'm, I'm just going to pick a random decade. I'm, I'm pulling it up here as we speak, guys. Uh, so, for example, in the 1980s, 1980 uh, Best Actor winner was uh, Robert De Niro as Jake LaMotta in Raging Bull. And uh, the Best Actress winner, another biopic, Sissy Spacek won for playing Loretta Lynn in Coal Miner's Daughter. If we have just one acting category, a choice is going to have to be made there. Uh, let's jump forward to 1983. Three, Robert Duvall wins for Tender Mercies. Shirley MacLaine wins for Terms of Endearment. Now you're going to have one winner in that category. Paul Newman won for The Color of Money in 86. And the Best Actress winner was uh, Marley Matlin for Children of a Lesser God. Historic win right there. Uh, moving forward to the near the end of the decade, uh, Jodie Foster won for The Accused in 1988. Dustin Hoffman wins for Rain Man. Uh, what I'm getting at here, folks, is that if we have just one category, first of all, we're talking about we're going to talk about shorter awards programs. If you're only going to have, you know, best supporting uh, actor and have that include all uh, gender identifications, uh, you know, you're going to have fewer categories. But I think uh, the real uh, unfortunate offshoot would be fewer great performances would literally be rewarded because you're only going to have one category. I'm all for expanding acting categories and. Other uh, categories, for example, the Golden Globes does uh, comedy or musical. And the Golden Globes have a million problems. They're trying to rehabilitate their image. We'll see how that goes this year. But they recognize comedy and or musical. As we've talked about so many times through the years, the Academy Awards almost never recognize comedies. They did it. There was a time when they did. I mean, Annie Hall back in the 70s was certainly a comedy. Shakespeare in Love was at least a, on some level a, a romp and had a lot of comedic elements. And that's about it. And you think about all the great comedic performances, most of them have never even been nominated. So I think that you definitely could have a category for comedy in the Academy Awards. Uh, I've agreed with a lot of people who think that, especially in this day and age, stunt work is something that should have its own category. When you think about the importance of stunt work in so many movies, from the Marvel movies to action films, to just about everything you can think of. Uh, I could see that expanding. That, this is my only uh, misgiving, though, about having one gender-neutral acting category is, you know, you're going to have just one best acting performance, one best supporting acting performance. And what happens if, uh, you know, the men win seven years in a row? Now we've got a problem there. So I, I really, really, really respect Emma Corrin and everybody else who's calling for this. I think that's the biggest problem there is is that, while it would be a enlightened way of thinking and a progressive way of thinking, which I'm all for, um, I think it actually in some ways, you know, would take away from so many great performances because now you've got just one winner in, in so many different acting categories. Uh, in that same uh, respect, speaking of Oscar contenders, The Whale, Darren Aronofsky's film, has been getting a lot of uh Film Festival Buzz, it'll be coming to theaters soon. I've seen it. I'll have my review for you guys as soon as The Whale is available to the general public. And Brendan Fraser, who, you know, has had, it was a huge, you know, had a huge career going 20 some years ago and then kind of disappeared. And, and he's now back 
And I think for sure he's going to get a nomination for Best Actor. But for for those who don't know the story of The Whale, it's based on a play. It's a fictional work. It's not based on a true story, but it is based on a stage play. Uh, and Brendan Fraser plays a, a gay 600-pound writing instructor who's become a recluse. And his health is failing. He thinks he's going to die soon. And he wants to reconnect with his teenage daughter, who's played by Sadie Sink. Do you forget the feeling? People are incapable of not caring. And uh, the great uh, majority of this film, almost all of it, takes place in the apartment, in the home of uh, Brendan Fraser's character. Of course, there were prosthetics involved to have uh, Brendan Fraser look like he is a 600-pound man. They're amazing. It's amazing work because when you know it's Brendan Fraser, but we've come so far in terms of you know back in the day when people would just wear what they used to call fat suits and we don't call them that anymore but they would just wear padding and even the prosthetics from a you know a decade ago are not as advanced as they are now that being said there are some people saying that this role should have gone to someone who is actually obese and uh daniel francesi uh who was in mean girls he's been among those uh voicing this criticism saying to finally have a chance to be in a prestige film that might be award nominated where stories about people who look like us are being told. Then they go time and again and cast someone like Brendan Fraser and me and the other big queer guys were like, what the bleep? We can't take it. Darren Aronofsky talked about how they did try to find someone that they thought could take on the character, but they couldn't fill the role for various reasons. Um, let's be honest here too, when whether we're talking about someone playing someone who's obese or other situations, you have to have names sometimes to get uh, financial backing for films. This is a this is a tricky area too because I, I really respect when we hear from the disabled community saying, "Geez, another you know uh, able-bodied actor is playing a role there where they're using a wheelchair," or uh, gay actors talking about you know so many straight actors who have played uh, gay roles and and various ethnicities and you know should you be of the same ethnic background as your character and i respect all of that but again i worry that we will paint ourselves into a corner sometimes and you know part of acting is becoming different people and using makeup and prosthetics and learning accents uh, and obviously there's some cases that are extreme and and certainly there's a lot of casting that happened in the past that would never happen now you know, just look at Mickey Rooney and Breakfast at Tiffany's and, and many, many other roles that were, they should have been offensive then. They certainly are now. But I, I do side with um, the craft of acting. And that sometimes means that you're going to wear prosthetics. You're going to have a different physique. I, I certainly think it's it's healthier, literally healthier for an actor to, to put on the prosthetics than, you know, we've had famously actors put on 100 pounds or lose 50 pounds to play roles. And I I was never a huge fan of that. We see all these articles about these amazing transformations. And I was thinking, yeah, but that's, that's not good. And it's sending some, I think, some negative messages. In this case, I completely empathize uh, with what some people are saying and the problems they have. But I, I don't think there's a problem whatsoever with uh, 
Brendan Fraser donning these prosthetics and, and becoming this character. When you see the film, you'll see the one thing for sure. And, you know, historically, the the overweight, the obese characters in movies, dramas and comedies uh, far too many times have been played for laughs and been the subject of jokes. And that is not at all the case here. It's a great film, folks, and a, and a great performance. So I we'll, we'll talk more about The Well when we get close to the release date. Okay, why don't we take a break? Rokan's going to tell you about Portillo's. We'll come back and uh, take a look at a few things that you might want to avoid and some, some good stuff out there as well. I think it is time to tell you about Portillo's. Okay. The greatest single fast casual cuisine experience you're going to have anywhere on the planet Earth, right down to the poppy seed bun. You're going to enjoy it so much because it's one of the million great ingredients that Portillo's uses, whether it's the Italian beef or the sausage or the legendary chocolate cake. That's just all the beginning. Mm -hmm. The fries, the salads, the chicken. I'm telling you, if you have Portillo's- The burger. It, the burger's great. Yes. And, and you can get beer at the Portillo's too if you go nice. into the store. Nice. I'm just going to tell you right now. If you have a Portillo's near you and you've not eaten at a Portillo's before, let's say you live in California, Arizona, or Florida, where it's relatively new, you want to check it out. Take the Roe and Roper endorsement here. It's one of the finest experiences you're going to have ever in that kind of a food environment, like fast casual. You know, it's not exactly fast food. You can sit down. It's nicer, but it's super great. Portillo's.com, P-O-R-T-I-L-L-O-S.com. Ask your friends in Chicago about it, Portillo's.com. I heard it myself. Slaves are free. Says who? Lincoln. We must get to Lincoln's army. Five days through this swamp. There are many ways to die in a swamp. There are many ways to die here. I will not be afraid. What can a mere man do to me? My family is with me. Forever, I will look in triumph at my enemies. Well, speaking of the Oscars and Will Smith, that's a clip from Emancipation, the new feature film, also Apple TV Plus, available soon on streaming. This stars uh, Will Smith. Now, you'll remember after the infamous slap that some projects involving Will Smith were put on hold. I think some were put on the shelf forever. Uh, Emancipation is not such a project, and I, I'm perfectly fine with that. We've gone over this a million times. Will Smith is on the apology tour once again. We could do... You know, all kinds of commentary on that. I think we're we're ready to move on. And as I said at the time, this was not a career killer for Will Smith, as opposed to a lot of other things that we've seen uh, with various actors and directors. And Emancipation is a prestige project. Uh, it's based on the true story of a slave named Peter who, in the 1860s, uh, became a worldwide symbol of the horrors of slavery when photos of the scarring on his back were repeat, uh, from repeated whippings were circulated around the world. There actually were photography endeavors to happening as, as early as the 1860s, and these two photographers took pictures of Peter, and they circulated those uh, horrific photos, and it really brought home the, the absolute monstrosity 
uh, of slavery. So it is based on that true story. And the real life, Peter, there's a lot of back and forth about how much we know. And there's, there's some magazine articles way back in the day that may have embellished the story. But there was a real life slave who escaped, somehow made it all the way to Louisiana, uh, Northern Army, American Army camp, and joined the Union Army and fought against the South in the Civil War. And that's all true. Uh, the movie, uh, it touches on some of that, but really, you know, the director is Antoine Fuqua, who I like a lot. He did Training Day and The Equalizer, but he's an action movie director. And what this really is, is uh, an 1860s version of The Fugitive. It's really all about the escape and the relentless pursuit. Ben Foster, who's a great actor, plays the relentless slave hunter who's after William uh, Will Smith, Peter, and uh, Ben Foster's character is sort of like Lieutenant Gerard in The Fugitive or more obsessed than uh, Javert from Les Mis. And it's all really about Peter's, you know, uh, the the ingenious and clever and resourceful ways and his dependence on his faith and his belief in his family to stay one step ahead of this relentless pursuer. So it's an action movie. It's shot in kind of desaturated colors, a lot of drone shots and all that's really well done. But I think there's a much uh, more important story that they skipped over here. So my written review, I give it two and a half stars. It's, it's you know, it's a mild thumbs down, if you will, but it is a thumbs down. Uh, and the same could be said of a film called Empire of Light, another prestige project coming out, also starring an Academy Award winner, Olivia Coleman. Look around you. This whole place is for people who want to escape. People who don't belong anywhere else. How do you feel? I do feel a bit numb, I suppose. You can't just give up. Don't let them tell you what you can or can't do. All these people. I'm the only one who knows the truth. Do you understand me? I'm the only one! Here's to the future. Walking those old scenes. Here's to getting back up. And here's to coming home. Uh, this is from Sam Mendes, the writer-director, who doesn't do a lot of movies and TV, but when he does, they're often really memorable. He's the man behind American Beauty, wrote to Perdition, more recently the film 1917, the World War I film, Empire of Light. I, I, I really love the setup for this, guys, but it, I found it kind of disappointing, the execution. Empire of Light is set uh, in an English coastal cinema in the 1980s kind of, I don't want to say a second tier cinema, but it's a little out of the way, but they're celebrating movies. And it's really cool because, you know, they're playing movies like Being There and uh, Chariots of Fire, you know, all these movies that really did come out in the early 1980s. And Olivia Coleman plays a kind of a, a lonely middle-aged woman who works at the theater. There's a love story involving a, a young college student who gets a job at the theater. But Olivia Coleman's character has a lot of mental health issues, and it's a lot about her breakdowns and uh, her, you know, kind of bipolar personality. Prestige cast here: Colin Firth plays the manager of the cinema. Toby Jones is, is the projectionist, and they all get their moments. Um, but I have to say, I found it kind of a sour film. It really kind of wallows in the misery of this one lead character. And then it has some resolutions that I'm not really buying. So uh, sometimes beautiful to look at and certainly a celebration of movies. But Empire of Light is something you can avoid. Let's talk about some better stuff. Three to see. How about we kick it off with a clip from Violent Night? This is my fourth year at the center. How about you? I started the whole damn thing. All right, revelers. 
Welcome to your worst Christmas ever. Let's go! You have $300 million in your personal vault. That's what I want for Christmas. Are you gonna help us, Santa? Yeah, Trudy. Santa? No, my nice list. Santa Claus is coming to town. Boss, what if he really is the There's real? No such thing as Santa. Yeah! Oh, ho, 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 if you will. Okay, so Violent Night. You know, there's a there's a handful of these movies coming out this holiday season that are taking uh, very dark and violent turns on various holiday fables and other kind of fairy tales. So Violent Night. I'll go back to uh, ladies of of and and Die Hard. And after the success of Die Hard, which was a huge and to this day one of the greatest action movies of all time, they took that same premise and kept doing it in other movies. Under Siege was Die Hard on a ship. Speed was Die Hard on a bus. Executive Decision was Die Hard on a plane. It's basically you know the lone antihero in a enclosed setting going up against one or more terrorists. I mean, even White House Down, you know, more recently is Die Hard in the White House. So Violent Night is basically diehard in a mansion on Christmas Eve. And uh, it's fantastic. David Harbour from Stranger Things plays Santa Claus. And he's really Santa Claus, but he's a bulky, beer-drinking, brooding Santa Claus who's kind of had it with the job. Kids these days want nothing but video games and cash. He's tired. And we learn his origin story goes all the way back to when he was a, a, a Viking warrior. And actually, the real the real Santa Claus, <laughs> the real myth, if you will, of Santa Claus in some ways does kind of tie into certain Norse uh, mythology. So it kind of plays off of that. So anyway, he's delivering presents to a very nice little girl who's with her extended family. And this family is horrible. They're sort of like the family from Succession, only much cruder and a lot dumber. And uh, John Leguizamo leads the band of terrorists who come storming into the mansion. They take the family hostage. They want to get the $300 million that's in the underground vault. And the little girl, and uh, she had just seen Home Alone. So that kind of influences how she kind of works against this band of, of, of thugs and terrorists. But mostly it's Santa Claus who has to kind of save the day, uh, wielding a sledgehammer using everything from a Christmas star to ornaments to Christmas lights as weapons. This is uh, from the same producing team that gave us John Wick and Bullet Train. And it's like at least as violent as those movies. So it's gruesome. It's darkly funny. And it's a fantastic, fantastic variation on, you know, the kind of classic uh, Christmas tales, violent night, but no going into it. This is pretty brutal stuff, guys. On the very opposite end of the spectrum, this is a movie that's been playing in theaters for a while. We haven't had a chance to talk about it. It's Steven Spielberg's The Fablemans. This, of course, is his semi-autobiographical tale about a family in the 20th century uh, with Sammy Fableman essentially playing the Spielberg doppelganger. Uh, his parents, played by Michelle Williams and Paul Dano, take him to the movies in 1952, and he sees... Uh, the greatest show on earth and he's fascinated by the train crash at the end of the film and from that moment on he decides he's going to become a filmmaker and throughout the movie uh as sammy grows from a young boy into a teenager into a young man he's making his own home movies in the 50s and 60s up to about 1970 and we get to see versions of that just like spielberg made all these little short films uh but it's really about this family and uh unfortunately you know the dysfunctional marriage uh, between his parents who both love him but his mother played by Michelle Williams again is uh dealing with depression uh is unhappy in the marriage 
his father's best efforts really can't save the marriage. And Spielberg's entire life and career, of course, was informed by his own upbringing and the divorce of his parents, the splitting up of his parents, uh, which led to so many themes that we see explored in so many Steven Spielberg movies. So we sort of see that play out in the Fablemans. It's pure fiction, but it is inspired by true stuff. It's beautiful. It's, you know, Spielberg is the master for 50 years plus now. He's been giving us memorable films. It's not quite a masterpiece. I think it goes on a little too long as the, the family moves westward uh, from New Jersey to Arizona and eventually Northern California. And then Sammy is going to make his way to Los Angeles and try to become a filmmaker. But there's a great ending with a, a, a nifty cameo appearance. And it is all about our love of cinema. So the Fablemans got to check it out. What kind of movie are we going to make? dismiss what he does it's playful or imaginative you could afford to be a little encouraging you can't just love something you also have to take care of it it's more important than your hobby can you stop calling it a hobby you stop making movies that'll break your mother's heart i don't know what to do anymore you do what your heart says you have to what was your favorite part and finally, I want to mention George and Tammy on Showtime. Now the race is on and here comes pride up the back stretch. Put your hands together for George Jones. You live in a fast world. Fast is the only speed I know. Miss Tammy Wynette, mm-hmm. will you make me an honest man? You make me an honest woman? You bet. You need to slow down. So many people are relying on me, fans and my family. They're going to take it from us. Take what? Our fire. Stand by okay, so this is the story of two country music legends from uh, the 60s and 70s, actually even going back to the 50s in the case of George Jones, who eventually married Tammy Wynette. Michael Shannon plays George Jones. Jessica Chastain plays Tammy Wynette. She's now played two famous Tammies from uh, long ago, Tammy Faye Baker. She won the Academy Awards. Now she's playing Tammy Wynette. This is based on a true story. And the marriage of George Jones and Tammy Wynette is like a stars born squared or tripled. I mean, or if you look at all the backstage dramatics and fights and affairs and scandals and betrayals and legal troubles and bouts with addictions and onstage annex uh, depicted in Ray and Walk the Line and Respect and Elvis and Fosse Verdon. If you put them all together, I don't know if they'd equal all the shit that George and Tammy went through either together or separately. We're talking about bouts with the law and kidnappings and alcoholism and drug addiction and affairs and all kinds of other crazy stuff. And it, it's a six-part series and they still can't get through all of it, but it's really well done. It's a little melodramatic at times. Uh, what's really impressive to me here is Michael Shannon is singing George Jones and Jessica Chastain is singing the Tammy Wynette songs. Uh, they recorded live, so it doesn't have that weird kind of out of sync uh, audio element. Listen, uh, Michael Shannon and Jessica Chastain would be the first two to tell you they ain't George Jones and Tammy Wynette, but they're both really good. And uh, we're reminded, even if you don't know their music voice, you probably do know Stand By Your Man, Tammy Wynette's signature song. You probably know some of the other songs, but the musical performances are impressive. The acting is fantastic. George and Tammy on Showtime, even if you're not a huge country music fan, I think, you know, the acting, the period piece, uh, production numbers, all of that make it well worth your while. 
Well, that'll do it for another edition of the Richard Roper Show. I am Richard Roper. Thanks to Brian Winger, to Renee Nelson, to Tim Alanius, and everybody at AmericanEagle.com, all the people that make this happen, in particular, Brian, my producer. Uh, we'll be back soon with another episode of the Richard Roper Show.